Side Hustle to Small Business is brought to you by Hiscox Insurance. Hiscox understands small business insurance isn't like other insurance. To learn more about how Hiscox Insurance can protect your business, go to Hiscox.com. Hiscox, encourage courage. Even if you're not a first-time CEO, even if you're a second time or a third time, the reality of the situation is no one has ever done what you're doing the way you're doing it. And if they have, you should probably find something else to do. So it's always going to be new. It's always going to be the first time and no one's ever going to have the right answer for you. So the best thing you can do is understand that and follow your instinct and understand that you're going to make a ton of mistakes and learn from them. Welcome to Side Hustle to Small Business. I'm Lou Casal. On this show, I talk with entrepreneurs who chased after a dream without any idea of how it would turn out. Let's face it, nothing great is achieved without risk. Do you have what it takes? Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. So, do you want to start a business? Here's an idea. Cash in your 401k and let it ride on a business in an industry that you've never worked in before. Now, just to be clear, I'm not making that recommendation, but it's exactly what today's guest did. Today, you'll meet Aleeks Peabody, founder and CEO of Bev, a beverage company whose first product is a canned California rosé wine. This is the story of how one entrepreneur has set out to change an industry from the inside out. Here's my conversation with Aleeks. Aleeks, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm glad you're here. I have to tell you, I meet all sorts of entrepreneurs who are driven to create businesses for all sorts of reasons, but your story, how it developed and the why and the mission is something I'm looking forward to speaking with you about today. So why don't we pick up your story as you were graduating college? What was your initial career plan and how did your first steps out of school and your early jobs match up to that plan? I, like most college students, figured that I would go into finance or consulting or something like that. And my thought was, one day I'll be wearing one of those power suits walking around New York City. Little did I know I would be wearing overalls, drinking wine. But um, that was a very different path than what I expected it to be. But right after school, I did go into finance for a couple of years, moved after that out to Silicon Valley because I got the bug to really start my own company and actually went into executive recruiting because I figured I would get paid to meet people. And that was a good idea. And when I got out there, I ended up having some health problems, uh, which is kind of what led me into a very different path. Can you talk about that moment a little bit more and how that eventually would lead to a side hustle for you? So I was living in San Francisco. I just moved there. And I was walking to work one day, just had horrible pain in my stomach, was rushed to the ER, got to the ER and was told that I had an ovarian torsion in my right ovary, uh, which basically started to just die because there was no blood flow. So I had an operation that night. I ended up having six operations over the course of 18 months because it would not ever (laughs) stop, basically. It was pretty frustrating. And I had to pay for medical bills. And because I just moved, I maxed out on two insurance policies And it was related to reproductive health. So I needed to freeze my eggs and that was not covered by insurance at all. So I ended up with bills north of $30,000, $40,000 for a 24-year-old. That's a bit excessive, one might say. (laughs) So I started throwing parties, basically. And I started throwing parties, selling tickets to people to come basically hang out at my aunt and uncle's house for a day up during the summers. And they became very popular and 
raised a few thousand dollars that way, which really helped with my medical bills, some of which I pretty much just finished paying off. So you you came down with a serious health issue and your plan to pay for your medical bills was, I'm going to throw a party. Well, you know, it wasn't my plan per se, (laughs) but, but I had thrown this one party when I got to San Francisco because I didn't really have many friends. And so I, the only friends I did have, I told them to bring two people I didn't know. And it was small, but my aunt and uncle happened to have this beautiful house in Sonoma. And I don't know if you've ever been in San Francisco, but it's freezing cold during the summers in the city itself because of the microclimates and you go 30, 40 miles north and it's 85, 90 degrees, sunny, beautiful, and people are just aching to get out of the city. So people kept asking me if I was going to throw another one because it was fun and it should be bigger and this, that, and the other thing. And eventually it just dawned on me that people wanted it enough that they would probably pay to come. It was like a mini festival almost. Got it. So from organizing these ticketed pool parties, that sort of gave you an idea for a business. And it wasn't to take the pool party business full time. Um, You had created an experience really, and, and that was the inspiration for the mission of a business. Can you talk about that mission and how you thought about bringing it to life? I guess I say that I had an idea for the brand long before I had a product. And basically what happened was I saw this party system. And I went to a college that was very fraternity heavy. After that, I obviously was in finance and then in tech. So it just kept getting progressively more male dominated, not less. And I saw the energy of these parties and the fact that it was my party. It was my aunt's house. There was a big female owned space energy that I found to be very, very different from most of the social situations I would find myself in outside of that. And so originally I thought, I want to take that energy and make it bigger. There's people are more respectful. They're even men are having fun. Women are having fun. And it feels less like you're the object of someone else's evening as a woman in those situations. And so originally I thought I'm going to build on that and I'll build some sort of media company or media events company or something and quickly realized that that was somewhat amorphous. And if I had a mission that I really wanted to push, I needed a product that people would actually interact with on a regular basis. So that is how I completely accidentally stumbled upon the alcohol industry, which I just keep making it harder and harder for myself in terms of being the only woman in the room, but that's okay. (laughs) So you're at the point, you've got the brand, and then you see the alcohol space as an opportunity to bring it to life. What was the next step? Oh, Google. Very much so. (laughs) I was totally confused as to how I was going to do this. I learned a little bit about the wine industry from a person my dad knew who was in it. And then I just hunted and started asking people questions. And it was, it was interesting because what I found right away was that the alcohol industry was going to be one of the most difficult in the country to penetrate. Alcohol and medical devices are the most regulated industries, essentially. And so I started hunting about the rules and regulations. And in the alcohol industry, there's something called the three-tier liquor law, which makes it very, very hard for small businesses to sell because you have to use a legally mandated distributor, a middleman, essentially. And most of those people have clients that are Budweiser or, or Diageo or Constellation brands. And so they don't really, they're not incentivized to carry new unproven products when they're making all of their money off of much larger companies. 
So I realized that very quickly from my Google searching, essentially, and talking to a liquor lawyer and realized that there was one and one only exception to this law, which was for California-based wineries. So that is how I ended up with our first product being a rosé, opposed to a spiked seltzer or any other type of alcohol. You took a unique approach to financing your business, and it all started with your 401k. Can you, can you talk about how all that came to be? Oh, yes. This is always a frustrating part of my story because I really wish that I'd known I had it when I was throwing all of these parties and doing all this, frankly, ridiculous stuff. But when I left San Francisco after my health had stabilized and I just really needed a change. And so I left San Francisco, I moved down to Los Angeles and I filed a change of address. Immediately, I got some sort of notification from this 401k and you sign up for your first job and you do a whole bunch of paperwork the first day, you have no idea what it means or which boxes you checked. And that was me, essentially. And apparently, I had checked a great box for a 401k that had been deposited in and matched over the course of the two years I was there. It prompted a change of address notice. And I realized that I had a little bit of money saved up, which I didn't know before. And so I cashed the whole thing, took the penalties and used that to support myself for clearly not very long period of time, but as long as it would get me to buy our first product. So I got to ask you, I've been the Napa Valley many times and I have my favorite wineries and I know where I can buy bottles of wine. I have absolutely no idea where I would go to buy wine in bulk. When you started out and you had no experience in the alcohol industry, obviously, how did you know where to go to sort of put things in motion? I had no idea where to go. And that is how I ended up texting someone I met on a dating app two years prior, because I remembered that his profile said the Wine Institute. So I texted this guy that I hadn't spoken to in over two years, and he clearly thought I was a bit insane. And I asked him where I could buy bulk rosé, and he said the grocery store. Um, why are you calling me? Essentially, <laughs> and, I, and I told him, no, I need hundreds of gallons of rosé. Turned out that his roommate's family was actually one of the largest wine suppliers in the state. So he introduced me to his roommate. And it was quite a bet for them to take on me, frankly, because 300 gallons of rosé to a massive wine supplier is spillage. It's more expensive to ship than it is for them to make. So really convinced them to take the bet and just sell me this tote of wine and took it from there. So that's when I say that at the beginning, it was Google, I really mean it, it was hustling, it was figuring out anybody I knew who knew anything about the space at all, because I truly had no clue. We'll be right back after a quick break. Side Hustle to Small Business is brought to you by Hiscox Insurance. Hiscox, the business insurance experts, who tailor intelligent insurance solutions to fit each business's very specific needs. Get a quote or purchase a policy at hiscox.com. Hiscox, encourage courage. Welcome back. Here's the rest of my conversation with Alix. You know, so much of, and you touched on this earlier, so much of the success of a company in the alcohol space is tied to distribution. How did you approach the process of being new in the industry and introducing your company, the brand, and the product to distributors? I think that the fact that there just aren't that many products on the market for women, even though they are 51% of the population and 80% of the buying power, is something that is 
slowly beginning to occur to people more and more, especially in this space. And so I found distributors and got into meetings with them essentially the same way I've found everything else, just through hustling through the network and talking to whoever I could talk to and learning as much as I could until I got myself to the right person. And then when I was in there, for the most part, I was selling them the vision, but also they understand that there's a hole in the market. And I also think that my product itself was helpful as well, because rosé is a category that's been growing year over year for the past five years or so. Canned wines are exploding. And so it's also just a hot category, which frankly was entirely an accident. I didn't know that because I didn't know much about the space at all. I put my product in a can simply because I knew I had no marketing dollars. And so I needed something that would brand itself. That was my logic. It was no more than that, no industry studying or or anything. So I think it was a mix of the category and the huge white space in the industry that has made people excited and, and ready to get behind us. I'm curious, what happened to that first 300 gallons of rosé? Did you sell the product? Did you use it for promotion? Oh, that, so that was actually not for resale. That was for me. And (laughs) I used it primarily for some promotion and mostly for fundraising. So my thought was that it would be a very different conversation if I walked in with a six pack than it would to say, I have this idea and I have no supply chain. So I did everything I could to get that first product. And then I got it into the hands of as many angel investors as I possibly could. And I knew here and there. And I had some friends from Silicon Valley who had raised money before. And so I knew here and there who some of them were. And I basically figured out where the cool parties were and just flooded them with products so that people would try it and think that it was bigger than it was. Very, very sneaky. But that's pretty much what the first 300 gallons was used for. And the occasional sitting at home self-consumption because I'm so terrified of what's about to happen next. In terms of building the business, you had to go out and build a team to operate the business. How did you approach recruiting talent and what has worked well for you? Yes. Great question. Well, I was an executive recruiter when I was living in San Francisco, going through all my medical problems. First of all, I'm trained on how to recruit. And half of the battle is just finding the right person. And then there's convincing them to come work for you. It's been really interesting recruiting in my industry because so often there are so few women for starters. And so often They've found themselves capped and not having a ton of opportunity to grow or not necessarily connecting to the product or, frankly, occasionally being mistreated in their environments and situations. And so our brand is something that really connects with them and resonates. And so the talent that we've been able to attract has, frankly, been awe-inspiring to me. It's, It's crazy. The people that I'm surrounded by at work are way smarter, way more experienced, way more capable than I am. So I've been really, really lucky in that regard. I guess you'd say the the mission itself is doing the recruiting for you? Pretty much, yeah. And the pink walls. (laughs) People are excited. It's a fun environment too. You know, you think about beverage and it seems like a bit of an old stodgy industry. There isn't that much in the way of innovation. And that's why when things hit big, they hit really big because there just isn't that much. Someone told me that Over 2,000 new products hit the shelves every year, and maybe 20 survive. It's a pretty competitive, difficult space and difficult industry. And not much of it 
is pink and neon. So (laughs) that's definitely in my favor. On that note, there's just no such thing as clear sailing for any business. When it comes to the more challenging moments you face as a business owner, how have you been able to push through those tough times? It's all mission completely. It's for me, I truly believe and I truly feel that what I'm building is important and it's bigger than myself. And on the days when things are really hard, I say to other entrepreneurs who ask me this, if you're not emotionally tied to what you're doing, if you don't viscerally feel every morning when you wake up that your work is important and that it's good and that you're solving a problem or addressing an issue that needs to be addressed, those moments are going to be insurmountable because there are plenty of them. They're constant. It's filled with rejection and it's exhausting. And so for me, our mission is break the glass. And I really feel that over time, my hope is to make a statement about drinking culture and gender dynamics in those situations where we're drinking and hopefully slowly start to make changes around how men and women interact with each other in those situations. And ultimately over time, make it a safer environment for women as a whole. When you first started out, you took a risk to finance your business by cashing in your 401k. But today, now that your business is growing and you have employees and investors, how do you think about risk when it comes to to growing your business? Yeah. So I think that at the very beginning of the company, and by company, I mean myself, my cat, occasionally my cousin who I would draft (laughs) graphics for me, who is now our creative director. I think at the very beginning, something people don't really talk about is I was not in a mental space where I felt particularly good. And I think a lot of it had to do with being in and out of the hospital for a couple years, not really knowing my place. A lot of my issues were around reproductive health, which kind of made me question myself as a woman in many ways. And so I wasn't really in a particularly good mind space. And I think because of that, and you know, they say it's darkest before the dawn. And the question is, well, why is that? And in my opinion, it's because when things get really dark, you start to lose your sense of risk because you feel like there isn't all that much to lose. Things can really only go up from here. And for me, that's where I was. And so taking that initial risk was actually not all that difficult because it was tying myself to a purpose and a passion that I felt was meaningful. And frankly, in many ways, helped me rebuild who I was and rebuild confidence and rebuild happiness in my life in many ways. Today, it's a very different scenario. I love my life. I love my job. And obviously, I'm not playing with my own 401k anymore. I have serious investors and responsibility to them and to a very quickly growing team. And I think as an entrepreneur, you're always going to be a risk taker in many ways. And the best thing that you can do to hold yourself back from taking it too far is surrounding yourself with the right checks and balances. And so for me, it's bringing in the right COO, it's having the right advisors, because I have a million ideas a day. And if I went down every single one of them, you know, some are great and some are terrible, and we would probably run out of cash pretty quickly. Now it's really about having the proper systems in place to assess that risk and determine which risks are crazy enough to take and which ones are a little too crazy to take. Running a business is an ongoing journey, as we all know, and you continue to learn things as you go. But are there any lessons you've learned along the way that would help other entrepreneurs out there? My first piece of advice is that you know nothing. So don't pretend that you do. Understand that you're going to make tons of mistakes. And for me personally, I keep a book of mistakes. 
And I write down when I think I could have handled things better. I write down uh, situations where I just messed up, honestly. And I reflect on them and I go back to them regularly. I have gotten really into reading, particularly as it pertains to what those mistakes were and trying to figure out how to get better. So read a lot, understand that you don't know anything. And every time you think you figured it out, there is a whole new slew of challenges that appear with every single stage of growth. So surrounding yourself by the right people and staying humble and asking the right questions or just any questions over and over and over again, I've found to be the most valuable thing. Because even if you're not a first-time CEO, even if you're a second time or a third time, the reality of the situation is no one has ever done what you're doing the way you're doing it. And if they have, you should probably find something else to do. So it's always going to be new. It's always going to be the first time and no one's ever going to have the right answer for you. So the best thing you can do is understand that and follow your instinct and understand that you're going to make a ton of mistakes and learn from them. As you think about what lies ahead for you and your company, what are what are your plans for the future? Well, they change pretty regularly, <laughs> but my hope is to really build a brand platform that stands for what we believe in, which is break the glass. And what does that particularly mean? Well, that's something that evolves and changes, of course. But for me, it's addressing male-dominated industries. It's changing culture. It's building more opportunities for women. And it's doing so from a place of joy and happiness and togetherness and not from a place of anger, which is something that we care a lot about, particularly because the nature of our product, the nature of our industry, it's fun. By its very nature, it's fun. That's the whole point, right? And so approaching these serious issues in a way that's relatable and approachable for men and women alike and everything in between. So that's kind of where we're going. And over time, maybe that means building out different product lines. Maybe it means building out a media house, Red Bull style. Maybe it means having a fun. The sky's really the limit. It's step by step, but that's where I see us going, hopefully being being quite big and quite impactful. Alix, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. On several episodes of this show, I've talked to entrepreneurs who set out to change an industry. And by change, I simply mean to improve things for everyone, whether you're working in that industry or you're a consumer. We've talked about how entrepreneurs innovate, make a difference, change the game, and drive economic growth. But we need to add break the glass to that list. There are entrepreneurs out there who are starting businesses, challenging the status quo, and saying, this needs to change. They're helping to make a better world for all of us. Cheers to that. That's our show for today. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe, rate us, and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show, and we greatly appreciate your support. If you know someone who has a great side hustle to small business story to share, drop us a line at hiscox.com slash side hustle to small business. Side hustle to small business is produced by Hiscox Insurance. I'm Lucas Al. It's time to stop listening and start hustling. This podcast is provided as general information only and is not intended to be business, insurance, or legal advice for any particular person or entity.